<clears throat> nobody, 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 nobody. Nobody rage short stories. Hi everyone, I am Jeremy and Megan is not with us right now, but she is here in spirit. And we have a great short story to tell you today. And it is Pretty Was Her Face by Eugene Ramos. And we'll get it started right now. Pretty Was Her Face by Eugene Ramos. Many, many years ago in a land whose name has long since been forgotten, there lived a king who lost his queen to the brutality of soulless men. Wanting to protect his young daughter from such cruelty, he confined her to his castle's dungeon. When she asked why, she was simply told that, like her mother, pretty was her face. For 13 years, the princess lived in the darkness of her prison, unseen by anybody except for her father and her jailer. However, on the princess's 18th birthday, the king decreed to the kingdoms beyond his own that he would entertain suitors for his daughter's hand in marriage. The king's subjects rejoiced for their ruler, was old of age and had no heir apparent. From far and wide, princes journeyed to the kingdom, brought on by rumors of the princess's unparalleled beauty. But rumors they were not, for, as the princes learned upon their arrival, the princess had blossomed into an exceedingly beautiful woman with hair as red as flame and skin as white as pearl. Her eyes were like polished cobalt, captivating all who would but look her way. Every prince who had laid eyes upon her pledged his undying love for her. But love alone would not win the princess's hand. The king devised a lottery by which each prince had to choose a key from a lot of five-score keys. But only one key, the king pronounced, would unlock the door to the princess's prison. Why leave such a union to chance? The princes wondered. Only one man is destined to marry my daughter. The king stated. And fate shall guide his hand to the correct key. As the keys were laid out before them upon a slate of black marble in the king's throne room, each prince eyed the next with a degree of distrust and distaste, believing himself to be the destined one. Each of the keys was different. There were keys of gold, keys of silver, and keys of lead, each encrusted with precious stones of diamond, ruby, and emerald. The princes studied them by the light of the hearth's fire, searching for any clue that might lead them to the correct key. One bold prince, the Prince of Caldwell, grabbed a golden key and demanded that he go first. With the king's consent, Caldwell ventured forth into the depths of the dungeon alone. Breath baited, the other princes waited for the outcome of Caldwell's choice. Long moments passed, and Caldwell emerged. His eyes downcast, his swagger lost, his heart broken. The princess was not delivered. Having witnessed Caldwell's failure, 
one prince refused to let chance decide his fate. Prince Richard of Deering, who came from a kingdom not far hence, had a friend who was a locksmith. They had been acquainted since they were children, the young prince and his pauper friend, but to each other, they were like brothers. The two of them used to lie out in the fields at night and stare at the stars, dreaming about their futures. I want to become a king, the pauper had told the prince. The prince couldn't help but laugh. You can't become a king. Only I can become a king. Why? The pauper asked. Because I'm a prince, he told him. And you are not. The pauper didn't understand what that had to do with his wanting to become a king. What made him so different from the prince? The answer to that question, however, soon became quite evident. The prince, unlike the pauper, lived in a citadel, wore fine clothing and ate lavish meals. The pauper, unlike the prince, lived in a small cottage, wore clothes of gruff fabrics and ate modest meals. He didn't know why such disparity existed, only that it did. The unfairness made him covet things he didn't have. And soon the pauper became a thief. At first he stole things that he felt in a fair world he deserved, toys and trinkets and shiny little things. And then he moved on to more expensive items, picking pockets, purloining purses, and nicking necklaces. As he got older, he discovered that people kept their most treasured possessions behind lock and key. So he apprenticed himself to a locksmith who taught him the art of tumblers and bolts and pins and levers. And by studying the inner workings of locks, the pauper learned how to break them. Although he had perfected the art of lock picking, the pauper had yet to perfect the art of caution. One night, while robbing the residence of a prominent lord, the pauper was caught off guard by the sight of the lord's wife in the act of removing her corset. The lord's men apprehended him, and the lord demanded justice for his indignity. Death was the punishment for the crime of theft. However, the prince intervened on his friend's behalf and pardoned him. The pauper was given a second chance, and he grew up to become a law-abiding locksmith. And now the prince had come to ask the locksmith to return the favor. The prince invited the locksmith to dine at his citadel, whereupon he extolled the physical attributes of the princess. How pretty is her face? The locksmith wondered. The most beautiful you have ever seen. Marveled the prince. I want her as my wife. What would you have me do? Asked the locksmith. The princess is locked within the key king's dungeon. The prince replied. Make me a key that would set her free. The locksmith went to work on the prince's request, but created something more than was expected of him. While the key would indeed be able to release the princess from her confinement, the locksmith had other designs in mind. 
Unbeknownst to anyone, the locksmith had kept a secret room in his workshop where he hid a collection of items he had stolen in his youth. Priceless stones, gold jewelry, the finest royal livery. He yearned to add more to his collection. So he forged a key unlike any he had forged before. A key that would unlock any door. A master key. And with this master key, he would have access to any door he wanted to enter and egress from any confining situation he wanted to escape. And he wanted desperately to escape the unrewarding life he lived. With the key cast, the locksmith decided to test it, not only on the locks that confine the princess, but also on the vaults that secure the king's treasures. Concealed within a red cloak, he journeyed to the king's castle under the cover of night. When he arrived at the castle, he eluded the guards without effort, for there were few who were awake. Although the corridors were labyrinthine, there was no door that could stand between his key and the dungeon below. Finding the princess's prison cell was the easiest of the tasks, for there were no other prisoners in the dungeon and no guard keeping watch. He approached the prison door and slipped his key into the lock. With a turn, the door sighed open. The locksmith smiled, for the master key had worked. As he closed the door to lock it shut, he dropped the key and awakened the princess as it clattered to the stone floor. She stepped out of bed and approached him, the bars of her prison door, the only thing separating them. Who are you? She asked. Nobody. The locksmith answered. Take me with you, she pleaded. I cannot. But you have opened my prison with your key, she said. I am yours. The locksmith made the mistake of looking into her cobalt eyes. And before he could utter another word, he was smitten. Nay, he was in love. The princess reached across the bars to caress the locksmith's hand, but he quickly pulled it back. I cannot, my princess. He told her with a heavy heart. This key does not belong to me. Then to whom? She asked. The locksmith stood there a moment, torn in two. The princess was the most beautiful thing he had ever seen, and he wanted her more than anything he had ever desired. But he made a promise, a promise he intended to keep. Please stay, the princess implored, her hands folded in front of her chest in supplication. I have not spoken to anyone besides my father and my jailkeeper for many years. I must leave, he said as he turned his back on her. But the sound of thunder froze him in place, and the hard rain began to pelt against the stone facade of the castle. It's raining, the princess said. Stay, at least until the rain ceases. So he did. The locksmith and the princess spoke for many hours, long after the rain had stopped. She was eager to hear of his life, far away from the walls of her dungeon. She giggled like a little girl at the stories he told her of his misadventures as a young thief. And the locksmith found that he could not stop talking. He wanted nothing more than to see her smile and hear her laugh. It was soon morning when the princess reached out beyond her cage to touch the locksmith's hand again. 
This time, he did not move. Take me with you, she said. As the locksmith was about to speak, footfalls were heard coming down the steps and into the dungeon. The princess's face turned white. The witch, you must hide, she said. Don't let her find you. So the locksmith found an empty cell, locked the door, and withdrew into the darkest of corners. From where he stood, the locksmith watched a dark-skinned emir enter the dungeon, flanked by two castle guards. He was dressed in long, flowing white garments, and in his right hand he bore a silver key. My princess, he said in an accent that the locksmith did not recognize. I have come to make you my bride. He placed his key into the lock, but the key would not turn. I am sorry, the princess stated. Not as sorry as I, the emir said with a huff. As he turned to leave, he came face to face with a haggard old woman, whom the locksmith did not see enter. She was wrapped in a dark blue pelisse, but it was her eyes that grabbed the locksmith's attention. They were blacker than the blackest pit he had ever seen. Make way, old woman, the emir said. What poor manners for a prince from the high Sahara. The old woman exclaimed. Her opened mouth was like a darkened cave full of jagged stalactites and broken stalagmites. I shall have to teach you some. The castle guards grabbed the emir's arms. What is the meaning of this? He demanded, but no one answered him. Instead, the old woman touched his face almost lovingly. Suddenly, the emir screamed in pain. It was the loudest scream that the locksmith had ever heard. He watched in horror as blood trickled down the old woman's hands and wrists. And suddenly, he saw the unimaginable. The old woman was holding the emir's face in her hands as if it were a mask. The emir's piercing scream ceased as he collapsed to the ground dead. Who would like to be the prince of High Sahara? The old woman inquired. The guard closest to the locksmith simply nodded. She caressed the guard's cheek and his face shed off his head like so much discarded skin. With great care, she placed the emir's face on the guard and bid him to serve his king well. He then left the dungeon to tell the other princes that he, the prince of the High Sahara, had failed to release the princess. After the old woman and the remaining guard left the dungeon with the emir's corpse, the locksmith cautiously exited his cage and found the princess weeping silently. What has happened? He asked, his voice full of fear. The princess regained her composure and said, you must leave now before the witch returns. But come back tonight when all is asleep and I, I will have a tale to tell you. The locksmith returned to the castle after nightfall and found the princess waiting for him patiently within her prison cell. She smiled widely upon his approach and bid him to join her inside. He was reluctant, but he soon relented. He unlocked the door and she led him to her bed where they sat. When I was five years of age, 
My mother was killed. The princess began her tale. Soon after her mother's burial, the fa her father, the king, had gone out on his own to find those responsible for the queen's death. Upon his journey, he found himself lost in a vast forest. He followed the rays of the sun, hoping to find a path out. The light led him to a clearing where he found a beautiful woman bathing in a river. The woman looked uncannily like the queen, so the king approached her. Before the river's edge, the woman's clothing lay scattered about. Among her belongings was a golden armlet that caught his eye and enchanted him. It contained in its center a large red jewel that sparkled in the sunlight. When he placed it on his wrist and wore it as a bracer, the beautiful woman shrieked and transformed into an ugly witch. She cursed the king. But he knew that her threats were empty, for he had in his possession the source of her power. The witch had become his servant. With the witch now under his control, the king urged her to tell him who the queen's murderers were. But she did not know. Her powers were limited without her armlet. All she could tell him was that the killers were of royal blood. Incensed, the king wanted to declare war on the neighboring kingdoms. But the witch counseled him to be patient. She advised him not to pursue the culprits, but to let them come to him. So the king devised a plan, a trap that would satisfy his thirst for revenge and feed his newfound hunger for control and power. However, this trap could not be sprung until the time was right. I am the trap, the princess told the locksmith. The locksmith did not understand why the king would kill all the princes and replace them with lackeys whom he could control. To the princess, on the other hand, the reason was perfectly clear. Her father wanted simply to protect his daughter. But she knew that he was misguided. She knew that what he was doing was wrong. She knew that somehow the jewel on his bracer was twisting his good intentions. Your father must be stopped, said the locksmith. I know, and I have a plan, the princess said. You must marry me. I cannot. You must, the princess maintained. It is the only way we obtain the bracer. Th there must be another way. The locksmith argued, if we wed, by custom, my father must grant me one wish, the princess told the locksmith. I will ask for his bracer, and then we can destroy it. I'm sorry, princess. The locksmith said as he backed out of the prison cell and locked the door behind him. There must be another way. The locksmith found himself in a situation from which there was no apparent escape. He returned home to ponder the dilemma, to study its tumblers and bolts, its pins and levers. Every lock he knew had a key to unlock it. The solution, however, proved elusive. And the appearance of his friend, the prince, only made matters worse. Where's the key? The prince asked. The key is not ready yet, replied the locksmith. Then why have I spied you at the castle on more than one occasion? The prince challenged. I was there merely to test the key. You were there to steal the princess. 
The locksmith denied the accusations, but the prince didn't believe him, for there was many a time when the locksmith had stolen from the prince. When the prince demanded the key, the locksmith refused him. If I give you the key, you will die. The locksmith told the prince. Do not threaten me. The prince warned. The friends fought. The prince for the princess's heart and the locksmith for the prince's life. They traded blow for blow, but the prince was the better of the two. And when it was over, the prince stood triumphant. I thought we were brothers. The prince cast his angered gaze down upon the beaten locksmith. You have broken my heart. The prince took the key from the locksmith and departed for the castle. When the prince returned to Deering without the princess, the locksmith knew that his friend was dead. With his promise to the prince no longer impeding him, the tumblers and levers began to fall into place. Like every locksmith worth his weight in precious stone, the locksmith had made a copy of every key he cast. This too was true of his master key, and he would need it in order for the princess's plan to work. But before returning to the castle, it was also necessary for him to play the part of a prince. So he went to his secret room within his workshop to transform himself. From his collection of loot, the locksmith dressed himself in raiment of royal blue and scarlet red. From his chest of jewelry, he found a ring with the royal seal of Deering. And from his armory of stolen arsenal, he chose a sword that had the ideal heft and weight to exact his revenge against the witch. When he arrived at the castle, he was announced as Prince Spencer, brother of Prince Richard of Deering. In front of the king's court and the invited princes, the locksmith was asked to select a key from the lot laid out before him. He chose the one that looked the most like his master key silver one with a stone of amethyst. An escort of two royal guards led him to the dungeon. As they neared the princess's cell, the locksmith placed one hand on the hilt of his sword, ready to face the witch when she appeared. When the princess saw the locksmith dressed in royal finery, she stood up from her bed, a look of surprise across her face. The locksmith placed a single finger against his lips. I've come to set you free. He said. With a subtle flick of his wrist, the locksmith slipped the silver key into his sleeve and retrieved the master key. He placed the key into the lock, turned it, and pushed the prison door open. The princess then ran into the arms of her prince. I knew you would come back, she whispered into his ear. Was there ever any doubt? He said before he kissed her across the lips. The two were so overjoyed that neither questioned the whereabouts of the witch. When the locksmith re-entered the throne room with the princess at his side, there was an audible gasp from the other princes. Their opportunity to wed the fairest woman in the lands was now gone, and they each cursed their procrastination. While the atmosphere within the castle was decidedly negative, Outside, it was a different story. Bells tolled throughout the kingdom, and town criers took to the streets announcing the news that a prince had set the princess free. 
a celebration was at hand. The wedding was a pompous affair, resplendent with flowers of all type and decoration of all manner, as befitting a man of royal birth. The locksmith was given new garments to wear, a white cape of the finest fabric, a gold-plated suit of armor, and a crown encrusted with the rarest of jewels. The nuptials were attended by all members of the king's court, including the jilted princes and members of their retinue. Outside of the castle, the king's subjects awaited eagerly for the royal couple to make their first public appearance. When the locksmith and the princess stepped out on the balcony overlooking the crowd as husband and wife, there was such a loud cheer that the ground shook for many, many miles around. The locksmith took a moment from all the joyous commotion that surrounded him and smiled at his beautiful princess. When all the ceremonies were done and all the guests had departed, the king called forth his daughter and his new son-in-law to the throne room where the fire in the hearth kept the cold of night at bay. The king asked the locksmith to kneel before him so that he could be knighted into the king's army. However, instead of feeling the flat of the king's sword gracing each of his shoulders, he felt the point of the blade pushing against his throat. Tell me. The king demanded. How you opened a lock with no key was meant to open. The locksmith said. I fashioned my own key that can open any door. So you admit that you cheated. The king said as he pressed his sword harder against the locksmith's neck. Convince me why you deserve to live when you have ruined my plans and stolen my daughter. I have not, the locksmith said as he raised his eyes to meet the king's. I have set you and the princess free. <laughs> free? The king laughed. <laughs> free from what? The witch's thrall. The witch has no control over me, the king declared. My actions are my own. Then prove it, the princess spoke. Give me your bracer. I cannot, the king replied. But you must, said the princess. It is my nuptial wish. Despite his misgivings, the king could not refuse his daughter. He sheathed his sword and turned his prized possession over to the princess. When she curled her fingers around the bracer, the locksmith witnessed something disturbing. Her cobalt eyes for a moment flickered to obsidian black. As she placed the bracer around her upper arm, the locksmith's heart broke. He withdrew his sword and cut the princess's arm off. The king screamed in horror. What have you done to my daughter? The young woman cackled, revealing the broken and jagged teeth that littered her mouth. With her one arm raised, she hauled the locksmith with an invisible force and threw him across the chamber. She then picked up her severed limb and reattached it to her shoulder. It was as if the arm had not been sundered in the first place. The king called out for his guards, but the witch shut his mouth and barred the door shut. Now, my liege, I will have my revenge. From afar, the witch lifted the king off his throne and proceeded to squeeze the life on him, out of him. Your kingdom will now be mine, 
before she could finish her deed. She found one half of a sword protruding from her chest. She spun around and found the locksmith behind her. She grabbed him by his neck and picked him up. What have you done with the princess? The locksmith demanded as he clutched desperately at his perpetrator's arm. The same thing I did with the queen, the witch said through her craggy grin. I took her face. The locksmith screamed in anguish as he struggled in the witch's grasp. He kicked hard against the sword in her chest, causing her to flinch in pain and drop him. Fool! You cannot defeat me, the witch said. From the floor, the locksmith raised his hand and showed her the red jewel he had filched from her armlet. No! She screamed. The witch reached for his hand, but it was too late. The locksmith had thrown the jewel into the fire. As the witch hurried to the hearth, the jewel cracked inside the fire's intense heat, and suddenly the witch seemed smaller. She was powerful no more. The locksmith, battered and bloody but not beaten, stalked toward the witch and pulled his sword from her back. And as the witch fell to her knees, the locksmith raised his sword above his head. The face of the princess looked pleadingly up at him, and the locksmith hesitated. I was too late, my love, he said. And for that, I'm sorry. He brought the sword swiftly down across the witch's neck, severing her head from her shoulders. With one hard kick, he sent the witch's body into the fire. When the decapitated head rolled to a stop, the princess's face looked up at the locksmith without warmth and without pity. The witch was dead, and her hold over the king and his kingdom was at an end. Even so, the king passed away two days later. Weighed down by the truth of his wife's death and the loss of his daughter, the king's heart simply stopped beating. The day after his death, the locksmith became the newly crowned king. He had gotten his boyhood wish. Over the next three years, the new king exposed the pretenders that the former king and the witch had planted and brought peace throughout the lands. In his kingdom, his rule was fair and just. Nobody lacked, nobody wanted. The privilege of the few became the privilege of many. As a result, he was beloved by his subject and was an enemy of no one. As his days grew short, he took a commoner as his wife and made her his queen. He was a kind and loving husband and father who doted on his wife and his seven children and his several grandchildren. From all appearances, he lived happily until his dying day. However, his mask of happiness hid a profound sadness, for in his heart he harbored a painful truth. There were doors, he came to realize, that could never be opened. Once shut, they would remain forever shut. No key, however crafted, could open them. He kept this sorrow locked away in a secret place, hidden in the dungeon of the castle, behind a door that could only be opened with the master key kept around his neck, was a vault that, once upon a time, held the princess captive. Within, frozen inside a block of ice, 
he kept the witch's head upon which remained the face of the princess. And he would spend many an hour looking upon it and remembering how pretty was her face. Michelle, that was so good. Great read. It's beautiful, isn't it? It is. It's so well written. Just as as just somebody who loves to read, but also somebody who is an actor. Like just the language. Oh, so beautiful. I agree. I agree. This is one of my favorites that I've read. Uh, Michelle, thank you for another awesome read. We are going to be holding you hostage next season when we have more pieces. <laughs> I hope you know that. Um, everyone, please check out Michelle. She has her website listed. Uh, she's got many good things coming and can't wait to work with you again. Bye, Michelle. All right, so we're going to be doing things a little bit differently today because we don't have Megan. We also won't have Cranky. So we're just gonna go straight into it with Eugene and I'm excited about it. Eugene, where are you? Oh, that's right. We need to do the bio first. <laughs> that's usually not something I do, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna commit to this because it's really great bio. All right, ready everyone? Eugene Ramos was born and raised in the Chicago area by immigrants from the Philippines. After devouring countless Shakespeare plays, he earned a degree in 16th century British lit from Northwestern. He later graduated from an MFA in film from Columbia Un University, where he received a fellowship from Comedy Central. Since film school, he participated in the Humanitas New Voice program, the Clarion Science Fiction, and Fantasy Writers Workshop, and the Cape New Writers Fellowship. Last year, his screenplay for the sci-fi short film, They Charge for the Sun, directed by Terrence Nance, was nominated for a Humanitas Prize. He currently writes for the Netflix animated series, The Dragon Prince. We just started watching it, it's really good. Uh, because of his love for the bard and science fiction, his friends gave him the name, the sci-fi Shakespeare guy. All right, now it is time to show you Eugene. Eugene, hi. Hello. Hey how Jeremy, how's it going? Pretty good, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. <laughs> yeah, Wasn't that wonderful? Uh, say what? Wasn't that wonderful? Oh, it was so good. Uh, I, I love I love Michelle reading. I love your story. It's just so good. I love Michelle's the ending. So uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so Eugene and I talked about this a little bit before. How long ago did you write this? It was actually in 2008 when I wrote it. So it's, it's been a while. Crazy. Yeah. So when you looked at it, it was like a different person wrote it, right? Sort of. Yeah. A little bit for sure. Yeah. What parts do you remember connecting with? Um, so it's funny. So I, I had written this piece um, for an anthology that a bunch of my friends had put together, and I had written a, an intro um, to the to the short story. So looking over the intro itself was kind of interesting because it reminded me of the sorts of things I was thinking about in terms of inspiration. Mm. Um, Wait, what what were those? I'm curious. What were the things for inspiration? Um, mainly mainly Shakespeare. There's a little bit of um, <laughs> surprise you know, after your bio. <laughs> There's there's a little bit of uh, Merchant of Venice in it, okay, um, cool. And uh, of course, uh, Grimm's Fairy Tales. Um, I, I wanted to write something that did not have sort of a Disney ending. I wanted something a little bit more um, grim, so to speak. 
Um, it's funny because Disney goes from from taking Grimm and Disney fies it, and you just reversed it. You're like, right. nah, dude, we're gonna put this back, Grimm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's also this Sting song called "After the Rain Has Fallen," which is about a, a a thief that breaks into a palace and finds that there's a princess there who who's held against her wishes and wants to escape. So that was probably the little kernel that that inspired the story, and then I took that and really expanded upon it. That's so cool. You're like the second person that we've had on that uh, compared it to a seed or a kernel. Can, I'm just curious, like, how does that usually go with you when you're writing? Do you just find a nugget and then you, how's your writing process? Um, yeah, it, it always comes from a, a seed and then it just mm -hmm. explodes. Once I start thinking of, of, of an idea, I start digging into research. And that research really, you know, fills in the gaps of the story. Um, I wrote a, a script about Isaac Newton and it came from... Was that for Sloan? It's for Sloan, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, how did I know? That's crazy. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. We had Sloan at Carnegie Mellon too. Cool. Um, yeah, that's neat. Yeah, that's actually how I know Megan. Uh, she and oh I were, goodness. yeah, we both got yeah, Sloan. And you know Tracy that. too, who also went to Carnegie Mellon. Yep. Yep. That's so cool. That's neat. <laughs> Did you know Megan before Tracy? Uh, no. Well, I think we met at the same event. We both okay. we all met at a Sloan event. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. And now you're you're out in LA too, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Cool. Yeah. That's great. Um, and so now you're writing for a TV show. You you stopped with the writing prose for right now, right? Yeah. You know, writing prose utilizes a different part of my brain. And uh, <laughs> that part of my brain has sort of um, um, been moved to the corner. Um, mm. You know, going to film school and, and, and being told how to write in a certain way, you have to sort of leave out all of the um, flowery language that you would expect in prose. And especially in novels, um, you know, what makes novels great is that you could get into, um, uh, into the brains inside the internal life of the of the main characters, and in in film, you typically don't do that. And you and you you know you're not supposed to write about that in your scripts. So once you sort of you know have your brain in script mode, at least for me, it's hard to go back to prose mode. Mm, yeah, they they do work two different types of muscles, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I encourage you to keep at it. I've already told you this. <laughs> your writing is so good for prose. Um, I would love to have another one of your pieces on the show just because it's just so good. Um, so we have some people we have, do you know, Peter Kalavos? I do. Okay. He clapped for you. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Then, uh, we have Maureen Lorden. Uh, she watches our show regularly. Hi, Maureen. She says, great read, Michelle, and great story by Eugene. Thank you. Oh, one thing I want to say, yeah. one of the reasons why I loved Michelle's reading um, uh, when we were doing the rehearsal, it just reminded me of, um, do you remember in the beginning of Lord of the Rings and Galadriel is uh, is narrating like the background story about how the rings were, were formed? Oh, yeah, yeah. And that that reminded me of like if, if Kate Blanchett had narrated the story. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, did you think anything was going to happen with this piece or did you just have it like collecting dust? It's been collecting dust. Um, there's really not much I can do with it. Um, the, 
the short story market sort of weird because I had um, published it, yeah. self-published it with friends. It's, it's really, you know, I really can't do anything with it anymore. Were your, because you said you've written other short stories, were they also fantasy or did you write other types of short stories? Yeah, most of my short stories are science fiction or fantasy okay. or uh, magic realism. Okay, well, I want to read more of your stuff. Sure. Um, yeah, and I think we covered we covered your inspiration and everything. Um, is there anything that you, uh, Peter says, any chance it can be adapted? Oh, <laughs> Eugene, would you adapt this piece? Maybe. So the funny thing, you know, I, I told you that I, I hadn't um, I hadn't looked at the short story for a long time until very recently. And it's it's really interesting how um, the storytelling is so compressed, but it's still told like in a cinematic sort of way. Absolutely. So yeah. I could see someone and maybe I'm not the right person for this, but I could easily see someone adapting it as a screenplay. I don't know, Eugene. I think you might be the right person. I, <laughs> I, I just watched the show that you're you're writing for, and it has elements of that for sure. It was really interesting once you mentioned it. I was like, oh, I got to check this out on Netflix. Uh, Peter says Dragon Prince. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's such a fun show to write for. It, it does uh, play to my strengths for, for world building and, and fantasy. How else do you dabble with Shakespeare now? Like, do you do anything else with Shakespeare? Yeah, um, I mean, basically, almost every script that I write has some sort of um, Shakespeare seed in it. Mm. Um, so that that Isaac Newton script that I told you about yeah, has yeah. a lot of um, "As You Like It," um, and I wrote a uh, Filipino mistaken identity script, which is uh, comedy of errors. Oh, that's so, cool. um, and I and I wrote a, a couple of witch pilots that that are uh, that are based on the Tempest. What what made you connect with Shakespeare so so heavily? Like you know, people don't know who Shakespeare is. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, his, I mean, his storytelling is is so rich and is the basis of a lot of uh, the sorts of stories that we like to to read and the sorts of stories that we like to tell. Um, it's so interesting that. Um, I don't know. I feel like almost every every story you read has some sort of influence or basis in Shakespeare. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I told you that this kind of reminded me of Game of Thrones, sort of. <laughs> uh -huh. And I was like, well, actually, that makes sense because you know, G.R.R. Martin is really inspired by Shakespeare too. So inaccurate. It was actually giving me Shakespeare vibes. I just didn't connect <laughs> it to that. And I agree, Shakespeare is wonderful. Like, I didn't like him at first because I couldn't understand like what was going on when I was younger. Like, I was like, this doesn't make sense. This is like really highfalutin words. But like, once you actually understand what's being said, um, it's just really poignant. I think it's brilliant how he takes a whole bunch of characters and give gives them all different perspectives on the story. Right? They all have different interpretations of what's going on and different arguments on how a problem should be handled. I think that is brilliant. And I actually think that people should be stealing a little bit more from Shakespeare. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm just a Shakespeare nerd. It, it's it's hard sometimes to drag friends to see Shakespeare plays because they get bored. But uh, yeah, I would love to see more Shakespeare TV and more Shakespeare movies. 
Yeah, and just the way he structured story, just like the five act structure, it works so well. I mean, uh, do you? I'm I'm curious, just for me, do you structure like in three parts, or do you do five parts, like when you do <laughs> film? It's it's interesting because I, I structure things in four parts. <laughs> four parts. Okay, so you're like not Shakespeare. I'm gonna do it my own way. Well, it's I'm I'm actually copying some other people who. Um, so I do the four part based on uh, this method called the eight sequence method. And I think looking oh, at- that, uh, His Trudy, is it Trudy? John Trudy? I think that's his way that they, um, or maybe I'm making that up. I'm no, lying. it might be, but I, 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 read a, a, I read a different book and maybe uh, Trudy is based on that. Um, no, but for me- I'm probably wrong, you all. Don't, like, <laughs> Eugene is right, I am wrong. Um, but yeah, looking at a script in four parts, it's just easier for me to um, see the moving parts. That's really great. Um, Eugene, is there anything else that you would like to mention that you're doing? It sounds like you're doing a lot of wonderful things. So if there is, we really want to hear about it. Um, just watch The Dragon Prince. It's such a fun show. It's for, you know, kids and adults. And there are only three seasons right now on Netflix and season four. Uh, should be coming sometime in the future, so. Yeah, it, it does remind me of The Last Airbender, like Avatar The Last Airbender. I think I said the name right. Is that the title of the show? It has a lot of those vibes. Um, yeah, the our showrunner uh, is a former uh, head writer of Avatar, so. Okay, well, that makes sense that that <laughs> is that way. Yeah, it. I, I really appreciate how it, continues the story all the way through like it doesn't go back on like it's not episodic where it's just wait is it episodic where it it goes starts like it's a problem for the episode and then it just restarts from the beginning right. like yep. there's actually an epic journey that is happening which i really appreciate yeah yeah it's a lot of fun well eugene thank you so much for being on the show uh, i already told you this so many times but i really really love this piece and <laughs> megan really really loved this piece as well um so please submit again thanks so much for having me all right huge high five eugene boom all right so i'm gonna be doing this outro by myself so please forgive me if I miss out on anything. Um, this is the last episode for the season, and we were so honored to have Eugene on the show as our season finale episode. We are currently looking for people as talented as Eugene. So if you know people that are writers or you know friends that know writers, please have them look at nobodyreadshortstories.com. They can submit there. We're going to be looking at all types of genres, all different tones. So Eugene, if you're still listening, bring your friends on board too. Um, I gotta do the pillow thing. Uh, we have merchandise. We have all types of merchandise. We have shirts. We don't have underwear, but we do have socks. So if you're looking for something that kind of looks like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, well, here you got it. Um, all the money that we do get from the merchandise goes back into the show. If at any point, like we're super flourishing on this show, the money will go to charity. We don't really want to make money off of this. This is just for our love of short stories. Um, I have a website of my own. 
Uh, every week I do a short story, a micro short story of 100 words or less. And if you subscribe to that, you will get those straight to your email. Megan, my co-host who's not here right now, also has a website uh, where you can subscribe and get information about what she's working on. Her website is meganamorrison.com. Uh, this is not just on YouTube. For those of you who don't want to see my face, you can actually see it on all the important podcast channels, uh, Apple, Stitcher, I always miss one, Spotify, and not iTunes anymore. Uh, what is the one I'm missing, Mark, the producer who should not be yelled at right now? Amazon, that's it. So there's Amazon. Um, and if you want to reach out to us, you can use Facebook. Uh, we are also on Instagram. And if you use Twitter, please use the hashtag NRSS podcast and we will get immediately back to you. Uh, let, let us know and Eugene know what you thought of this episode. Like if you have any questions for us or Eugene, please make sure to leave it in the comments below. If there are any types of stories that we have not been presenting that you, you want, or if there are certain ones that you want more of, uh, please also let us know because we are definitely paying attention to what you all want. And speaking of, uh, this is all for you all. Like we really wanted something that people can be watching while they're on the go, while they're doing dishes, something short and sweet and beautiful. We also wanted people to see how important and cool short stories are. So if you're loving this, make sure to let us know by liking, ringing our bell, and also telling your friends and family so that they know about us as well. Um, let's see, I think I covered everything. Yes, I think Megan would be proud of me. I think we got everything in there. All right, well, thank you all for tuning in to Nobody Read Short Stories, and we will see you next season. Bye. No one reads short stories anymore. I really don't know what they're written for. Go write a short story. Throw it out the door Cause no one reads short stories Funny, sad, or gory No one reads short stories anymore Yes, no one reads short stories